0: Welcome to Mapping Healthy Minds, a podcast that explores the intersection of mental health and real life. I am licensed marriage and family therapist and your host, Justin Lewis. On today's episode, I talk again with my regular guest, Leslie Donner. Leslie and I talk about one of the most famous names in mental health, probably, uh, especially amongst those outside the field. We talk a little bit about Mr. Sigmund, excuse me, Dr. Sigmund Freud. Freud had stages of psychosexual development, and we talked about that. We talked about Freudian slips and just covered a little bit about how he made an impact on the field. So before we get into the episode, I do want to let you know that Mapping Healthy Minds is brought to you by Compass Counseling. Compass Counseling is a three place shop for mental health services uh, and also telehealth throughout the state of Kentucky. So, if you want to get some counseling, whether that be couples, individuals, for your children, then you can go to our website, compasscounseling.com. There, you can get your appointment set up. You can look at the Bio, bios of the different therapists there, and you can uh, get everything set up through text messaging at compasscounseling.com. All right, so now here is my interview with Leslie Donner. Freud basically, oh, by the way, hello, Leslie. <laughs> Hi. Leslie knows a lot more about Freud than I do because she is a psychologist and she is a psychology teach professor.
1: I was. For she a long was. Time.
0: Did you have your students call you Professor oh, Donner? Gosh,
1: no, I did not. Miss Donner? They just called me Leslie a lot.
0: Leslie? Mm hmm.
1: I was not, hmm. am not formal.
0: What if they uh, accidentally called you Dr. Donner? Is that a Freudian slip?
1: You know, um, no. No, that wouldn't be a Freudian slip. What would that be? Um, well, a
0: misunderstanding I of get, your title? <laughs> well,
1: I, <laughs> What if
0: they knew that you weren't a doctor, yet still called you doctor? Would that be a Freudian slip?
1: No. No, that would just be like a suck mis- up thing. What
0: if they weren't even trying to suck up? What if they just literally did not remember? Or, or, see, here we go. Freudian slips. <laughs> no. They're crap. <laughs> so here I am. I have a Freud book on my bookshelf, by the way, so I'm not so anti-Freud. But for it, Freud, and correct me if I'm wrong, he kind of brought talk therapy into normalcy.
1: Yeah, which he called So that impacts me on a daily day yeah, sure <laughs> basis. right? Yeah, Even if I, mean, I don't
0: talk about some of his philosophies, I yeah. still obviously am doing talk therapy uh, every day. And you day. have a couch. And I have a couch, but they it's don't really, lay on it, right? Most people do not. Some people have. I've had very, some teenagers lay down few. before. <laughs> I've had. Uh, I can remember one adult that lay down because his back was hurting. Yeah. And sometimes I think people are afraid that they're supposed to lay down. Yeah. But they don't.
1: You know, he, I think he also would have people face away from him. I wonder how beneficial that would be so that they didn't Mm. have to worry about the eye contact part. I think that would be kind of helpful actually to talk Mm. to someone without looking at them. Not if I were the therapist, but if I were the client.
0: On the other hand, as the therapist, we can, I don't know if you have these, uh, but I had, I look for tells (laughs) if someone is not telling me the truth. Yeah. And if they're looking in an opposite direction, oh,
1: I, guess I so. can't notice
0: some of these tells. And I'm not going to give these away, just in case any of my clients are listening. I'm going to make sure and know if you're lying to me or not. So yeah. don't even think about what, me wait, giving it away. What are your tells? Well, I just told you I can't give it away because then people will not do it anymore. I always
1: think that when people look up, look one direction, look up the corner. And there's actually some research. Actually, about there's that.
0: one where okay, I'll I'll tell down and to the left. Mm-hmm. And also, if someone avoids a contraction. So if someone says something like, I don't know, I did not have sexual relations <gasps> oh, with that woman.
1: that's a good example. Wait, wait. We forgot. We should issue a disclaimer. We forgot about that part.
0: Okay. Disclaimer now. What is it?
1: Oh, well, you know, This, know, this, what we're going to talk about, some of the content may not be appropriate. Some for of the listeners.
0: following content might not be appropriate for younger listeners yeah. or people that don't want to hear us talk about Freud's psychosexual theories. Right. Now that everyone is more closely in tune with what we're about to say. And that was not
1: that. By the way, that was not a trigger warning. <laughs> I don't like those. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: right. Exactly right. Yeah, so the part that I was starting with was how Freud most definitely impacts all therapists today, whether or not they truly think about that, and that is by doing talk therapy, or as he called it, psychotherapy, yeah. which is the idea that problems can be improved on simply by talking about right. them. Right.
1: Or his, his version, I'm thinking about like managed care today and insurance companies, they would never pay for this much therapy because he would see people for years on end, sometimes right. three times a week. So it's like, okay, is this really effective? Or you right. know, are they getting anything out of yeah. this? Because it's taking a really long time.
0: Yeah. I mean, that is, uh, a tr- that is true. Yeah. That's, a, that's a question worth thinking about that I think about sometimes. Because the more someone comes here, the more comfortable you get. Right. The more comfortable you get with somebody, it's harder to know when you're done. Yeah. Because if they are coming here for a long time, it's because there's something that they like about the process or possibly us.
1: Yeah. And then it starts to kind of transform. The relationship to them starts to feel more like a friendship, and then it gets kind of cloudy as to, you know, what the purpose is, because we start to think, are you coming? Are you still getting anything out of this? You know? Right.
0: And then maybe they're afraid to share as much because they don't, don't want to disappoint yeah, us.
1: That's it. Yeah, that happens a lot. So
0: this is another subject for another day. <laughs> Today's subject is much more explicit than that. It is about uh, Freud's theories of the psychosexual stages. Yes. So, he had, what, four? Five. Five? Five. That's right, he had five. Number one is from birth to one, years mm-hmm. old. It is the oral stage. Yeah. Number two is from one to three, and that is the anal stage. Number three is age three to age six, the phallic stage. hmm Number four is from age six to puberty, which is the Latin stage. Latent. As I was saying, (laughs) latent. Number five, where I come from, it's Latin. (laughs) Number five, lastly, is the genital stage. Mm -hmm. I pronounced that right? Yes. Okay, thank you. So I, I guess we could just break down each of these stages and talk about how They may apply. I'll tell you what we're going to do. You're going to be a defender of Freud. Okay. And I'm going to challenge Freud.
1: Okay, that sounds good. Okay. Yeah, but but first, like, it just when the classes that I would cover this in, it was usually like in basic psychology, um, just the intro psych when we talk about personality and then and there was a personality class that we reverted back to the psychosexual stages a lot but i really focused on him the most in a developmental psychology class talking about child development and so to contrast his theory of development to some of the other pioneers in the field um eric erickson i'm sure you're familiar with eric erickson oh
0: yeah
1: and he had stages uh from age you know zero to death and they had uh names like generativity versus stagnation um or um Jean, Jean piaget uh he had theories about the cognitive development in children his stages he had four and they ended um like with you know Adulthood, Uh, but then his stages were things like sensory motor stage and concrete operational stage. So just comparing those names, you know, sensory motor versus (laughs) anal and phallic and oral. You can the last ones,
0: the p j, they sound much more twenty twenty one. Yeah, than the previous. They do not sound very right.
1: And the the idea of the that psychosexual, he was, Freud was talking about how these things that happen in childhood with relationships with other people, um, it, some of which. I'll kind of dig into and explain how, like maybe maybe I can get people to wrap their minds around this. Like maybe he was onto something. His presentation, I think that he deliberately tried to be controversial a lot. Um, that combined with the fact that he only saw middle-aged women, you know, he can't really extend that, you know, his theories to little boys or men or um, you know people that weren't wealthy. He mainly saw uh, women that were wealthy. And um, didn't do any real research, but despite all that, we still, we hear about him in pop culture a lot. And like I said, some of the things that he talked about, especially with these psychosexual stages, you can really see play out. Now you have to kind of tweak the the theory or the way he presented it just a little bit.
0: So he's, his clientele included middle-aged women.
1: Yes. I guess I I had
0: forgotten that or didn't know that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So why did he talk so much
0: about? Penises. If he's talking to women all the time,
1: well, I get actually he thought that that was the root of their problems. <laughs> some of the time, I guess you'd say he diagnosed uh, hysteria a lot, which we would now just say was anxiety, and he would say that these women had hysteria. Is that sexist? It is sexist. I mean, like to say like a, a woman, like a man. Actually, I mean, you, a man you know is what angry, has happened with that?
0: It's the same thing. I bet that's the same thing as like we don't say retarded anymore yeah you know Even like hysterical word, it was yeah. like a diagnosis official but then it yeah. just became so worn out that right. they had to change it right so now it's like just the same as saying something else as an yeah. insult they but like to, that, but that happens in our field all the time yes. we have to change our language because it becomes so prevalent or so misused or, or
1: some think offensive I guess. offensive yeah. right
0: Okay. Sorry to interject that. Go (laughs) on.
1: But so what he said about these psychosexual stages is that as a child is progressing through the stages, if anything goes wrong, then they can develop a fixation in that stage. So it's kind of like they get stuck in that stage. So things that go wrong in childhood in, say, the oral stage could lead to an oral fixation, which could um, lead to any of a number of problems in adulthood. So like in the oral stage... Which sounds good. Yeah, it does. It does sound good.
0: No, lots of things we could just say sound good, though, without yeah. research.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true.
0: So but- yeah, okay. So his idea is that if you don't move through these stages in a healthy way, you're going to get stuck. Right. Basically.
1: Right. And that you're going to like develop certain behaviors to compensate and that in times of stress that you might revert back to those behaviors. So for example, in the oral stage, the primary thing that's going on is, um, like eating like the or what he talked about the erogenous zone so all the baby's pleasure comes from eating or sucking so whether that's like sucking a pacifier sucking a bottle breastfeeding anything into the mouth so he said that the way you screw a kid up in the oral stage is that you either wean them too early or wean them too late creating an oral fixation that in it's a lot of pressure, yeah, you got to get right. that sweet spot there. That's right. Yeah. So, so what do you think an oral fixation would look like in adulthood?
0: Well, maybe using a lot of straws when you drink out of your yeah. cup, chewing maybe, on uh, things, chewing on your ice. Nails. Um, mm-hmm. Whenever you've got cups of ice, always chewing on ice. Yeah. Maybe um, something like that.
1: Drinking too much.
0: Chewing a lot of gum.
1: Smoking cigarettes. Yeah, chewing gum, eating candy.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, some would say like even um, like talking excessively or having like a oh, really? biting wit, like being very sarcastic could mean an oral fixation.
0: Really? Yes. How do they How do they that? equivalent that?
1: I don't know um that, well that that's where your pleasure comes from i guess in is adulthood. from you, oh from from the words yeah so like basically speaking something okay. someone someone's a smart ass well it means they weren't breastfed long enough according to freud
0: oh interesting
1: <laughs> like most of my my favorite stage is his phallic stage. that's where i think that's the one that makes the most sense to me um and then anal would be probably the second one after that okay so don't that, you feel
0: weird saying this well, do, you feel, do you feel a
1: little weird saying this? I don't. I think because I taught about it for so long, it's a little more natural that to it say it normalized that. it? Okay. Because usually when I would be talking about this in class, everybody would just sit there, kind of stunned, and not say anything. So the anal stage, the child's deriving their pleasure from um, from like potty stuff. So, and that's what the parents are trying to. Uh, Accomplished at that point, okay, we got to get this kid potty trained. So when you think about it, this is the point in time, this little kid, this little, let's say, two, two-and-a-half-year-old, someone is telling them what to wear, what to eat, when to go to bed, who to play with. Mm. All of a sudden, they realize they have this one power, this mm. one thing they can control, and they're going to control it because, hey, this makes Mommy really happy when I do this. I bet it's going to make her really mad. Uh, or frustrated if I refuse to do it, like so. That's what it's about. It's about these control issues. Mm-hmm. Now, here's something valuable Freud told us about the potty training years: that that process should never be punitive. It should never be like you should never shame the child for you know having accidents or whatever when they're trying to you know learn how to how to control themselves and how to use the potty and all that. Uh, That should be like a, you should reward them and praise them um, and not be mean about that. So if a child becomes anally fixated, it may be because the parents were very harsh during potty training. So in real life, I take that to mean if the parents were harsh during potty training, they were probably kind of abusive parents anyway. So yes, that could lead to an anal fixation later in life. So what do you think an anal fixation would look like?
0: Well, we hear this word in, in pop uh-huh. culture all the time, right? Yes. Someone will say, well, I need, I need my desk cleared off because I'm kind of anal
1: yes right they talk about it as being like
0: obsessive or overly clean Right. i need to make sure that my schedule is in order because i'm anal about this right and why are they anal
1: like what kind of issues do they have
0: yeah if they're like that
1: it's control yeah it's all about control self-control other people controlling them they usually had a history of of someone trying to control them and it didn't go real well um so yeah so they could be anal retentive which we kind of like into ocd now they can also be anal expulsive That sounds really messy and it is (laughs) like when you think about the show hoarders, a Mm. lot of people think of OCD as being all neat and tidy, but it can also look the opposite. Mm. And if you ever watch that show, most of those people have some kind of history of severe trauma in early childhood. And a lot of times it was some kind of abuse like sexual abuse or something like that. So Mm. maybe that might make some sense.
0: Okay, the need for control, yeah, basically, yeah. But only in age one to, to three. If you if you yes. if you get you know abuse in age four, you're safe yeah, from needing I think to. So. <laughs> that's the <laughs> that's the thing. That's the question, right? Is the stage yeah. is kind of like
1: you want your kid to be a little bit OCD. I think a little bit of it is a good thing. Um, so yeah, talk yeah, about just,
0: the stage part of it because, like, I was kind of making a slight joke, but also serious about was what's the difference in being abused at two and a half and five when it comes to that? You know what I mean? Like, wouldn't the same kind of behaviors, I mean, are you past that resilient point when you're at five? According to Freud, but
1: I think you'd internalize it in a different way based on hmm. your understanding of relationships and what's appropriate and not appropriate. Hmm. I mean, age two and a half, you're just going to be just scared and your heart's racing and you're upset, but you don't really know why. Yeah, and a five-year-old's just gonna kind of internalize. You kind of know more
0: that more. it's right or wrong when you're five than two. Yeah, yeah. And two, it's just natural self-protection kind yeah. of stuff coming survival. out. If if survival mentality. Whereas five, you've learned about green touch and red touch and yeah. that right. sort of thing, so you know more about being um, mistreated. Yes. So the three- to six-year-old is where the famous Freudian Oedipus complex yes, develops, that's, right?
1: That's my favorite stage. So much to so say is about this that.
0: Freud, mm-hmm. the fact that he wanted to have his client load be middle-aged women mm-hmm. seems to have fallen right into this, right?
1: Yeah. Oh, the daddy issues.
0: Yeah, he wants to eliminate daddy. <laughs> he wants to be with mommy. So he's going gonna to treat them for his so he's going to make his job
1: right.
0: <laughs> to help mommy, basically. right? Yeah. Nothing points more. T- See, that's my thing also with the Freudian approach is, and really a lot of these mm-hmm. people before research was such a prominent way to develop theories, was it was basically just like, Well, this was my experience.
1: Oh well, you love all (laughs) that, right? You're all about the bias lately. Yeah. So yeah, he would look for what supported his theory and then just ignore the rest. That's
0: right. He's just right. Exactly. Confirmation bias, experience bias. Mm -hmm. That's right. But anyways, I'll I'll step back off my criticism and let you talk more (laughs) about the Oedipus and Electra complex yeah.
1: so he said that two sides the s- of the same coin right? yes yeah. in in um and like the oedipus is the you know it's a greek tragedy where a guy kills his dad and marries his mom but in the story he didn't know that it was his dad that he was killing he didn't know that it was his mom that he was marrying um so Freud said that in the phallic stage that children would develop sexual feelings for their opposite sex parent. So this is the point in time where people that even, you know, kind of listened to him or had any respect for him at all were like, forget it, dude. Like, <laughs> you're crazy. We're not, we don't care what you have. Nobody to
0: say. wants like, to be accused no. of that, right?
1: No. Yeah, no, exactly. is it's so like creepy, gross. Yeah. Um, so he said that was a normal part of development in children. And the way that he described it, no, I don't think that, that there's nothing normal about that. That doesn't happen. But there is something about a dad and a little girl, and there's something about a mom and a little boy. They do have an affection at that age, a different kind of affection for their opposite sex parent. Mm-hmm. But it's cute. It's, it's sweet. They don't understand it, and it's not a sexual thing. Um, it's normal for kids that age to be like, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to marry daddy. Um, you well, know. I mean,
0: if you if you look at it, sometimes it plays out to like. Well, she's marrying her dad, kind of that, like.
1: That's what. Ha- that's where it goes wrong. Yeah. So, if during that stage you've got a dad who's not in the picture or he's an alcoholic or he's abusive in any sort of way what happens is that little girl grows up and like you said she marries her dad i think there's a lot of truth to that and we have this tendency to repeat the patterns from earlier in our life and she tries to get it right like i'm going to i'm going to seek out this person who it's not a conscious thing but she ends up with somebody who you know maybe he's abusive to her maybe not maybe he's not around maybe he maybe his version of not being around is that he's like married to his job and he works all the time regardless he makes her feel like her dad made her feel but she's going to fix it this time mm-hmm. sometimes she'll leave him then she'll get with someone else who's also very similar so that's what happens when that relationship fails between that little girl And the dad. But can
0: it happen in both cases? Like, I've noticed this as a thing. And it's not necessarily just people with bad daddies. I mean, I I look at sometimes people and I'm like, oh, she's definitely marrying her dad. He kind of looks the same. He's in the same field of work.
1: Oh, yeah. Sometimes it's a good thing. Yeah,
0: So it's not only someone trying to, like, replace... Dad with yeah. bad yeah, dad, I right? Think it could I go mean,
1: a good direction. Yeah. But with the little boys, I think what can go wrong with little boys, it, it's not usually that mom's not around. Sometimes it will be that mom is too close and their relationship is kind of enmeshed. She meets all of his needs. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you've heard people talk about, oh man, like he can't cut the apron strings or that's a mama's boy or whatever. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening in that relationship is when he grows up, he can never find a woman who is as good as his mom. And that that's just fine with his mom because she doesn't want him to because any woman that he finds, she's not going to like her anyway. She's not going to be good enough for her little boy. So, I mean, I've seen that play out. So
0: I've never thought of it this way before, so I'm talking it out loud, but I think generally it seems like within the in-law mm-hmm. selection the situation, the mother-in-law and the son-in-law mm-hmm. have a much easier relationship yeah. than the mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. Yes, absolutely. And so if we're going to say that the daughter is marrying her dad, yeah. wouldn't that make sense as to why the mother-in-law would have it easier with the son-in-law? Yeah, it would. I never really thought of it that way before. I've thought of it in terms of mother-in-law has one more person she gets to take care of. Yeah. I thought, I think that might, could possibly be a contributing factor. But if we look here at Freud's idea that she's marrying her dad, then that would be like the mother-in-law's husband, right? Mm-hmm. So she, they're going to have that positive connection yeah. in some way. Right. Hmm.
1: But there's a couple other things that, that happen to you in that, that particular phallic sage, some other terms that, I'm sure people are familiar with, um, penis envy. So the term penis envy. So then this is kind of, this is kind of from Freud, but this is kind of my own take on it too. Um, so Freud said that when children became aware of their genitalia, and, uh, I think that happens way before the phallic stage actually, but he, he said when they became aware that, that like males and females are different. Um, that they would think about it a certain way. So you, let's say you've got a little girl and um, maybe she's got a little brother or um, I don't know, it's, you know, they're at preschool, they're, it's a swimming party. Some normal, natural way that she happens to notice that, hey, here's a little boy putting his bathing suit on. He looks different than me. So, you know, Freud was like, she would see that and think, wow, what is that? Mm. I don't have that. <laughs> Yeah. I want that. <laughs> yeah. He can pee standing up. He, can, he has all these things that he can do. Um, so Freud said that the little girls would kind of internalize that and become adult women who uh, wanted to be male. And that's another sexist idea of his, that, that all women want to be male. I don't <laughs> think that that's necessarily true. I think women want to be treated equally as men. Um, but that's one of those insults that gets thrown around a lot when you do see a woman who's like super assertive or she's like smashing the glass ceiling or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, she's a bitch. She, you know, she's Mm. got penis envy. She wants to be a man.
0: Wearing the pants or. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, and he said that those little boys would then see those women or then see the little girls and think, oh, like what happened? Where's hers? What did she do to get it removed or why did it fall off or you know what happened to her I've got to find out what she did and make sure that I don't do that thing and that is where we get the term castration anxiety so um, the way that that can look is is not it's not literal I don't think he meant that to be taken literally that that grown men were actually afraid of that happening to them <laughs> Well, now I'll throw out like a 90s reference unless you're John Bobbitt. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners aren't going to know who I'm talking about. I think
0: you our listeners are in the age group that they remember John and Lorena Bobbitt.
1: <laughs> right, right. <laughs>
0: I've seen our numbers in like 30s, yeah. or 30s, oh, early yeah. 40s, mostly. Yeah. They're going to remember the Bobbitts for sure.
1: Yeah. Um yeah, that was always the part in my class when I would tell my class that little story and their just mouths would like drop. <laughs> like that really happened. I'm like, yeah, Google it, it really happened. Um but I think that castration anxiety in typical males actually it shows itself in relationships. That the men in relationships, and you probably see this sometimes in your couples' work. It's not that they're afraid that the woman's actually gonna castrate them, but I think that it does concern them if she's the type of woman who, uh, you know, when people say, Oh, she's a ball buster. That's what they mean. Like (laughs) she's emasculating. right. She does not let him, you know, like be the, be the man, I guess. The traditional
0: standard. Yeah. yeah, Right. So, uh,
1: so a woman who is, um, and, you know, it's always so weird to talk about this stuff because I'm always like, okay, I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to say this or say that. And, um, you know, yeah, gender stereotypes, some of them are just outdated. Do You do you, whatever. Um, but, like, if, you, if you're in a relationship with a guy and you have a flat tire and you insist on changing it yourself and there he stands on the side of the road or you insist, oh, I'll get the door, I can get the door. If you get offended because he gets the door, like, that's emasculating to him. Um, he's it's, he's not going to feel good about that. Yes, of course you can get the door. Of course you can change your own tire. But you know, sometimes in relationships, it makes him feel good to be able to take care of you. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And even though it might sound old-fashioned,
0: it sounds old-fashioned, sort of. But then when I work with couples, like we get down to the root of what their most common argument is, or what their their common like conflict is. And it's always the woman or almost always the woman feeling uncared for.
1: Yeah. Oh, isn't that funny? Yet yeah,
0: she thinks she has to match this societal standard of women have to do everything and doesn't mm-hmm. need the man. And the man is the feeling disrespected or not measuring up. Yeah. So kinda like what you were saying, hey, let this play out as a way that it's always played out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I know we're sitting over here in our uh, traditional stuff, but, you know, define your own relationship, too, this yeah. part of it. If you guys are, if you've got a uh, contract, so to speak, unwritten contract, right. that this is cool with me, if you do this, and this is cool with me, if you do this, yes. we're still going uh, gonna, gonna to have respect for one another, then that's fine. But uh, just being aware that stereotypes exist for a reason.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's some truth in some of them.
0: So getting back to the stage about the penis envy and the uh, wound. No, it was the, um, what'd you call it?
1: Castration. Castration. Envy? Envy.
0: Now, women had another defender mm-hmm. about the penis envy. <laughs> Karen Horny. Oh, yeah. I mean, can the names just a, not yeah, be any more know, difficult? Okay. So she had the, the defense of... Finding it to be demeaning to women that mm-hmm. a woman would yes. want a penis, basically, and so she said that um, it's actually men who are feeling inferior because they are unable to give birth, so they had womb envy. Right. So she had that to, didn't take off in to, the same way. Yeah, she had to flip envy. the script, and yeah, exactly. I mean, womb envy. Seriously, it's like the most painful thing a human goes through. Like, yeah. who's really going to be jealous of that but whatever. No.
1: Yeah, she was a she was categorized as a neo Freudian. So she agreed with some of his stuff, but yeah. She said, oh, you're second. She, she had
0: to stand up for the women there. Yeah. We are now on to the next stage, which is the latent.
1: Yeah. I say so it right no, that time. <laughs> nothing happens then. Nothing happens. So like this is when they're learning academic skills, social skills little boys and girls think the other one has cooties and that's totally normal, by the way, that's, you know, they tend to want to be with their same sex friends and, you know, right. think of their friends in positive terms. I think of their gender in positive terms. Um, so I guess according to Freud, since all those sexual feelings have gone underground, the kids can kind of like finally focus on all this other stuff. That's mm. important for their development.
0: They're not as, they're not as dependent on their parents on a day to day basis. They've yeah, got other, that's either more other people in their life that they're, associating with yeah all right so that's that's all boring yeah stage it, it, is. it is although developing the ego and super ego right yeah is that part yeah. of this
1: it is he didn't talk he talked a lot about the unconscious mind and all of that mm-hmm. um and he yeah he had he came up with a theory the iceberg theory of yeah the ego and the super ego your conscience and how all that develops there were some others that talked about it a little more than he did
0: so now is when, okay, so this is when puberty starts. Yeah. The other one was when puberty, like, well, it's like the, the breaking point between up to the line of puberty. And now we're talking about when puberty starts. Yeah. Until our dying day is the
1: genital stage. Right. So that's when he said, like, all the sexual feelings come rushing back. Hopefully, those feelings are projected onto appropriate targets at this point and not family members. Um, but yeah, so like if everything went, went well in earlier stages, this is when people would start to develop relationships, sexual relationships, romantic relationships. And as long as everything had gone well and they had good, healthy relationships with their parents, then there shouldn't be any problems.
0: And that's that.
1: And that's, that's his theory of psychosexual development.
0: So there's some criticism that we've kind of covered a little bit in that it's so focused on males mm-hmm. and not as much on females. Well, I'm, you know, that's I don't know. just simply I don't, his, the fact that he's a male? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> like like maybe. Kind of like that uh,
0: experience bias or whatever. He can only, especially if you're not doing tons of research.
1: Yeah, in his own, you know, like he, think he had some issues with his own parents, of mm-hmm. course. Um I mean, that's that's another one of those pop culture things that Freud said, like every problem anyone ever has is due to their relationship with their mother. Right. Uh, There's a saying like (laughs) mommy
0: issues. Right. Yeah.
1: Here's an example of a Freudian slip and a reference to that belief. Mm -hmm. If it's not one thing, it's your mother.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Freudian slip. That's another one that's uh, in society a lot.
1: Yeah, that, that he said there are no mistakes. Everything that you say, you mean. You know, there aren't any accidents.
0: Hmm.
1: And there's that other thing he said that I really like. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar.
0: <laughs> but coming back around to both our 90s reference and our Bill Clinton reference. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, that fits in real well there. Was
0: that a Freudian slip there, Leslie, that you went to that <laughs> saying after I'd already talked about Bill Clinton?
1: I was trying to, like, plant that in your mind.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, I brought it to light, for sure. I have seen, after a little bit of research, that Freud was not quite as opposed to homosexuality as many other people were at that time. As really? far as, as far as finding it as to be yeah. a pathology. Because it used to be DSM diagnosis. Right, right. but. In my uh, in-depth research <laughs> that yeah. I did here, uh, I have found that he was not quite as convinced that it was a pathology. Maybe he thought it was to some degree, but maybe he was a little more ambivalent than yeah. some of his colleagues. But uh, I don't know. He also believed that trying to alter a person's sexuality were usually futile and often harmful.
1: Yes. we'll see, once again, that's something that we... Um, we talk about a lot today
0: Mm -hmm, for sure
1: you know I read once that Freud and his wife did not have much in the way of sexual relations which I also thought was really funny (laughs) and maybe that's why he had it on the brain all the time (laughs) Yeah.
0: yeah I guess that's possible
1: yeah you know he One of his, I think it might have been his first book, was called The Interpretation of Dreams. And he said that, you know, a lot of times what you dream about is maybe it's your fears or the purpose of dreams is wish fulfillment. So you'll dream of things that you wish could happen in real life. But he also had like a whole list of if you dream about this, then it means this. Like Mm -hmm. what things represented. And of course... um, you know, there was a lot of things that were supposed to be representative of. Oh, that's phallic. You know, if you dream mm. about anything like snakes or right. uh, I don't know, how did he come up with that? Something? How did he come know. up with those
0: theories? I don't know. Did like, he ask anybody else, it or is this like his own stuff that he's I, stu- I, you know what I mean? Like- yeah, I
1: think some of that was his own. He said that uh, if you dream of purses, that's representative of like female genitalia. Purses <laughs> or stoves or ovens. And I can't help but think about that, um, that movie Step Brothers, where Will Ferrell and then the other guy like sleepwalk in the middle of the night, and they always put their mom's purse in the refrigerator, and then they put pillows in the oven. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm like, man, what would Freud say about that?
0: I wonder if the writers knew what they were doing there, possibly. Okay, well let's see here. We covered Freud today.
1: Yeah, a small part of him.
0: Small part, yeah, for sure. No way we could cover all of Freud in one sitting.
1: But Maybe we should also say, like, like all this stuff, of course, take it with a grain of salt. He was like a major cokehead.
0: <laughs> so here's another, like, a, for me, a so- sociological question is how somebody gets so influential that has these theories, that doesn't have as much research, who sees, you know, very limited type of people for his work that does drugs. Like, would anybody with those factors be able to influence society to that degree these days as he, no, as he did like, back in the, what was it? 30s, 40s, whatever. It
1: was, it was the Victorian era. Yeah. So everyone was really prudish too. Maybe that so was it. He that was, just was it. He was like contrast. super controversial, but now I think it would be hard to be controversial because everyone's controversial, you know? Maybe he... Well, you'd be canceled anyway.
0: (laughs) Maybe he blazed the trail for controversial. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, I guess that's really the only way to have your voice heard in your field is to contrast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's something that I'm interested in and to see how much, how he got so much influence.
1: I mean, maybe he said things, too, that other people weren't willing to say. Like, not just controversial, but because some of it is true. People know it without research they know it anecdotally they know that that is true that that's how relationships work that's how things just play out
0: and also i'm sure at that time people weren't just ready to talk about sex all the time yeah so that kind of made people interested and everybody wants to be told they are a certain way because of something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we can go down that. For we can go down that street oh, of uh, personality uh, tests and horoscopes and everything. It's just, yeah. just a, a more um, quote unquote credible way to look at that. I guess it is. I don't know. Anyways, yeah, it's just curious to me how he got so much influence based on something that was not as. Um, I guess he's probably a charismatic yeah. person. I don't know, yeah. what What can you tell me about who he was as a person?
1: Not much, other yeah. than the the drugs, the no sex with his wife, the... Right. <laughs> I don't know.
0: Yeah, okay. I
1: don't know, I wonder if he had a dog, I don't know.
0: Maybe, maybe he was a cat person.
1: Yeah, you're right, he would totally be a cat person.
0: Which I'm not judging. <laughs> if I had a pet... You would have a cat. It would be a cat, for yeah. sure. Okay, well, have we come to the end of uh, our discussion on Freud for today?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I th- I mean, yeah, This uh, it's a lot to take. It's a lot to take in, you know? It is. You have to talk about him in just little bits. Little
0: bits and pieces, for sure. <laughs> Anyways, we are here at the end. Thank you again for being here, Leslie. You're welcome. All right. This has been Mapping Healthy Minds, a podcast that explores the intersection of mental health and life. For more episodes, you can find the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and we are also on social media sites, Facebook and Instagram. Website for the show is mappinghealthyminds.com, which has access to all the episodes that we've recorded so far and a little bit more about the show. Thanks so much for listening, and if you enjoyed the show, give us a review or tell a friend. It's the best way for us to pass the word on to other people. Mapping Healthy Minds is brought to you by Compass Counseling and is produced and hosted by yours truly, Justin Lewis.